Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys, for that worship. That was really good. Um, I remember being in college, and I remember midterms, and so, frankly, I'm just really impressed that you're all here tonight. Isn't it amazing how easily you can convince yourself to not come, you know? And uh, when you're <clears throat> dating a guy like Keevan, he usually talks you out of going because, yeah. So I did really well going to chapel services and such until I started dating Keevan, and then he just talked me out of everything. <laughs> Oh, so I want to introduce you to a very special guy in my life. (laughs) This is my precious dog, Jack. And um, yeah, I couldn't part with him. So I'm not going on spring break. I'm staying home with Jack. But then Keevan got jealous, so he had to take a picture too. No, what cracked me up about that first picture is so to get Jack to look up, my daughter was like doing the treats, you know, here, Jack, you're, and then I'm looking at the treat too. (laughs) (laughs) That ridiculous. So, um, yeah, just funny stuff. (laughs) I'm glad to be here to share with you guys tonight. Um, If you listen to the Bama podcast, um, actually, Um, Marty talks about the Psalms, I think, in one of his um, podcasts, and he shares his feelings that his feelings about the Psalms are kind of meh, and actually that's how I feel (laughs) about the Psalms, so it was kind of comforting to me to know I wasn't the only weirdo out there that this didn't fall in love with the Psalms like it seemed like everybody else on staff did. Um, But I will say that I've grown in appreciating them for the fact that they bring comfort to other people, even if they don't bring it to me so much. Um, I don't think we have to just love everything in the Bible. You know, I don't think God's going to strike me down for that. So we all get, you know, um, strength and encouragement out of different parts of the Bible. So the psalm that I chose for tonight is different. I chose to speak on Psalm 127. And as psalms go, it's pretty unconventional. Um, It doesn't really talk about vows or calls to praise that characterize so many of the other psalms. It more closely actually resembles the kind of wisdom literature that we find in Ecclesiastes or the book of Proverbs. It's more of an instructional psalm. And it's credited to Solomon. Um, It's a It's a song that the people would have sung on their journey to Jerusalem, so it's a road trip song, um, on their way to a Jewish festival. Um, It's included in this package of psalms called Psalms of Ascent. Um, So it was written to cause the people, while they're on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to confront the reality of their daily existence. Um, And hope to motivate them to set their priorities for a truly fulfilling life with God. And so Psalm 27, 127 teaches the fundamental truth that we all depend on God. 
for life's most basic tasks. This is going to be a fairly straightforward and simple message that I want to share with you tonight. Um, Solomon wrote this important psalm because he wanted to describe for his people what a life becomes when you're consumed by priorities that aren't God. Um, and so it serves as this vivid reminder that while work is central to our lives, even the hardest work doesn't necessarily guarantee a successful outcome. Um, even the most vigorous, sustained work doesn't always provide what we think we need. Um, think about that test that you spent all night studying for and you still flunked it. Yeah, there's truth there. <laughs> so let's read one, Psalm 127 verses 1 to 2. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a psalm of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127 declares the truth to us. We must continually acknowledge our utter dependence upon God. In the psalm, I'm going to talk about two ways it specifically addresses this in our lives. The first one is in work. Verse 1 describes two common instances in which work is vain or futile. Notice that neither of these endeavors, God is not saying that either of these things is considered improper to do. You know, building a house, seeking after security for your family or community, both of these are acceptable enterprises. But there's a time when either of these tasks can become futile. In each case, our work is in vain when we engage in the activity with our own self-sufficiency instead of asking God to be involved in it with us. So instead, we do our best to secure up our lives on our own. But there are too many variables in which human beings have no control. This is one of the hardest lessons that you'll learn in life is control is an illusion. I've gone to lots of years of therapy. Believe me, control is an illusion. We, when we obsess over providing for ourselves and finding security on our own, we get trapped in a vicious cycle of trying to achieve what is humanly unachievable. It's a vain exercise. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of energy. This verse isn't saying it's wrong for people to get up early, to stay up late, to work hard, to make sacrifices, but many of us were brought up in a culture to believe that hard work is the measure of a person and that anyone who wants something badly enough, if they work hard enough for it, they're going to be a success. And that's a big part of our American culture. 
And that kind of thinking at its best is hollow. You'll find out once you're in real life after college that you can work all you want and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna find that job, that you're gonna get into that grad school, that you're gonna fall in love. It doesn't guarantee all those things. So that's the best. And at the worst, it can be very harmful to our spiritual lives and our emotional lives and our mental lives. So Solomon is warning against what I'd call two different attitudes that we can become entrapped by. The first attitude is, I can do it without God's help. And the second attitude is, I have to do it all right now. Um, I find it interesting that Solomon chose to use the example of building a home. Um, in America, anyway, often having a home is a symbol of status or security. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with building yourself your, a home, buying a home, but it's vain when we engage in it without God. Um, God is concerned about the building of houses simply because he's concerned about the things that preoccupy our time and our resources. Both homes that Kevin and I have bought, and then you can throw the international house in that too, have been the result of much prayer. And it, when we got those homes, it was... You, could, you just knew it was an answer to prayer, and I can tell you those stories later. Um, but God wants to be involved in every decision, everything in our lives. Think about the people at Babel. In Genesis 11, 3 to 4, it says, They began saying to each other, Let's make bricks and harden them with fire. Then they said, Come, Let's build a, build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Instead of conquering their insecurities and, and trusting in God's goodness towards them, the people decided to build something. And God wasn't threatened by their ability to make bricks. You know, lots of times people use this to say, oh, look at technology, you know, we're trying to build things to make us like God, whatever. New innovations aren't bad. Um, we were made to be creative. We were made to use our creativity. But the, the people at Babel decided to use that creativity in a self-sufficient way. And they decided to go against what God wanted them to do. And instead, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to do it on their own. You know, we were created to be selfless people who know how to harness our creativity for good. It's very easy to be deceived into thinking that God is only interested in the parts of our lives that we think directly involve him. But God makes no distinctions between what is sacred and what is secular. God's interested in every kind of work that we do. And there's no work from which we should exclude God. This reality has been transforming 
me and this ministry for the over 20 years that we've been here because when I graduated from Bible college, ready to do ministry, I had this idea that it was about specifically proclaiming the gospel message to as many people as we could in order to bring as many people into the kingdom of God that we could. And I'm not saying that isn't part of ministry, but ministry is fundamentally about service. And service is a part about so much of our lives. First Peter 2.5 says, Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. In everything we do, we're supposed to be bridge builders between God and humanity. So what's the problem if I only think of ministry as preaching, teaching, leading Bible studies, talking to people about Jesus? those are the only things that I think of as being important to God, then those are the only things that I will involve him in to be a part of. But 1 Peter 2.5 challenges me to realize that the mediation of Jesus Christ can and should be part of all the sacrifices I make on a daily basis, taking care of my body, making meals for other people, including my family, Discussing controversial topics with other people. Taking care of the earth and its inhabitants. Playing games and being competitive. Building relationships with the people at the dog park. Cleaning my house. Doing laundry. God wants to be included in all those areas of my life, too. In all these areas... I can offer as spiritual sacrifices. I wish I understood this in college because I think college would have been a richer experience for me if I realized that researching for papers, reading book, required books, getting to know my professors, you know, all those things were ways for me to build bridges between God and humanity. And Solomon could have written a psalm for us that said, unless the Lord writes the paper, the work of the student is wasted. Unless the Lord provides a job after graduation, sending out resumes will do no good. We were never created to carry the final responsibility for the success or failure of any venture. You can't carry the weight of whether a professor likes you. You can't carry the weight of whether you may be asked questions that are beyond your ability. You know, these weights are too heavy for you. And God's not only willing, but he's eager to take the burden of final responsibility for whether the house gets built and the city is saved. So work. That's the first area that Solomon talks about in this psalm. The second area is sleep. And verse 2 tells us that when our work causes, up, causes us to get up very early and retire very late, it is vain. I think this is interesting because if you are all familiar with Psalm, I mean Proverbs 31, about the virtuous woman, Solomon praises that woman for doing those very things, waking up early staying up late. So um, I don't think he's necessarily contradicting himself 
in this um, psalm, I think he's trying to put things in perspective. Everyone, every one of us is going to have occasions where maybe that requires us to put in a little bit of extra effort and longer time commitments. Um, but the workaholic is the person who's made this a daily pattern. Um, two Christian psychiatrists, Dr. Frank Minnerth and Dr. Paul Meyer, um, painted a picture in their book of the workaholic's true nature and its results. It says, the selfishness of the perfectionist or the workaholic is much more subtle. While they are out in society saving humanity at a work pace of 80 to 100 hours a week, they are selfishly ignoring their family. They are burying their emotions and working like a computerized robot. They help humankind partially out of love and compassion, but mostly as an unconscious compensation for their insecurity and as a means of fulfilling both their strong need for society's approval and their driving urge to be perfect. They are self-critical and deep within themselves feel inferior. They feel like a nobody and spend the bulk of their life working at a frantic pace to prove to themselves that they are really not, as they suspect deep within, a nobody. In their own eyes and in the eyes of society, they are the epitome of human dedication. A strong work ethic does not ensure freedom from want. Rather, a driven person's compulsive obsession for work produces this life of tediousness, of unsatisfying labor. And the only real guarantee against that is acknowledging that everything we have is God's gracious provision. We might make sure to eat two or three meals a day, but we might only be eating the bread of anxious toil. A driven person, unwilling to trust God, does not enjoy his food because they're haunted by the fear that every moment not engaged in labor is a missed opportunity for increasing their own provision. Have you ever wondered why God made us in such a way that we have to sleep away a third of our lives? Um, God could have designed a human being that was always fresh and rested and needed no sleep. Um, so why did he decree that sleep be a part of the human experience? Sarah's really happy because she likes to sleep. <laughs> I'll give you my opinion. He wanted to give us a universal reminder to the human race that we are but children and we have to own up to that. Like a child that doesn't want to take a nap, but we are forced to do it. We are so frail that we have to become helpless and unconscious and blind and weak every day in order to live it all. Sleep is a terribly humbling experience, and we are never more weak and never more childlike than when we sleep in faith. From the very beginning, God established the principle of rest. God made the heavens and the earth in six days, 
And on the seventh day, he rested. And later, when he gave the law through Moses, God established the Sabbath as a day of rest. I believe the Sabbath was intended to accomplish a couple things. First of all, it was this gracious provision for man to rest and recover. Six days, God says, are sufficient for work. The Sabbath was also given as an opportunity for us to learn to trust God and to strengthen our faith. Um, my relatives were all farmers, and my grandfather was very adamant that he ran a, he ran a, um, a thriving farming business, and he was adamant that no, not one of his employees would work on Sunday. And I tell you what, when you're a farmer and the only day it doesn't rain is Sunday, that takes faith to not get out there in the fields on those days. The whole creation story is a poem about resting, about Sabbath. It was written about the time that the Israelites were saved out of 400 years of slavery. They had been forced to work from sunset, from sunrise to sunset, seven days a week. Their whole existence, they had been told by their captors that their worth was equal to the number of bricks they could make in a day. So the very first lesson that God had to teach his people when they left Egypt was about rest. Our value and our worth does not come from what we do. I know you've heard this before, but we got to get into our heads. Our value comes from who we are. God called us very good right after he created us. And then he rested, not because he needed to, but because he was content with what he had made and he wanted a daggum day to rest and enjoy it. In the words of Nate Komar, daggum, right? What we accomplish will never, never be perfect. God didn't say what he created was perfect. He said it was good, and then he said it was very good. God knew how to stop, and we are made in his image. We have the capability of knowing when and how to stop to rest. There are always going to be things to do. Always you're going to have things to do in life. But choosing to rest tells our hearts that we are enough. So as we go to bed at night, we might look back on our day and wish we had worked better or harder or accomplished more or been interrupted less. But we can commit our day's work to the Lord, and then not lose sleep over it. After a hard day's ministry, what did Jesus do? He was able to get in a, he was able to get in a boat, fall so deep asleep that he didn't even wake up in a terrible storm. You know, the world is full of anxiety. And what I would say is there are legitimate anxieties. I remember being a kid and being scared to death to go to school because of the 
butt ugly snow boots my mom had bought for me and I was scared of being made fun of. I remember being in high school, in college, and I was worried about getting good grades. And then in college, I was petrified because I was asked to stand up in front of the entire student body to introduce a speaker. Um, then as an adult, um, it became about being scared that if I didn't impress people enough with our ministry, then they wouldn't financially support us. And, and then worrying about what would happen if one of our monthly, one of our churches that gives us monthly support would decide they couldn't support us anymore. You know, there's the anxiety of writing a sermon on time. And um, equally for me, worrisome is when I make a stupid mistake and how I'm going to get out of that. Um, and then, you know, the darkness of experiencing mental illness. Like, these are all legitimate anxieties. Um, but if you know the one who loves you unfailingly, and that he is in charge of your life, you're going to be able to sleep well. And if you're overworked and overstressed, it's because you're forgetting who God is. And maybe you need a reminder of who God is. Scriptures say that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And if that's true, then surely we can believe that when we hand over our anxieties to God and lay our heads down in peace, God works with all his might through the night on our behalf. The great test of faith is to believe that when we can see only a bleak outcome to our situation or circumstance and no good coming out of it, is still believing that a loving God can and will seemingly bring out of nowhere a turn of events or attitudes that ends up being a great blessing for us. And he can do that while we sleep. The person who is depending on God is able to rest in the reality of God's provision, of his, of his purpose and his power. And as the Jewish people sang this psalm, making their way to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, they were being reminded that most of their life was not spent on the road to Zion, but it was in work and it was at home. And the Christian pilgrimage is much the same. Each week, we gather to re-energize and reorient ourselves spiritually here in Violet Hall. But we do not spend most of our life in this room. Being a Christian pilgrim involves much more than just showing up for worship. The Christian pilgrimage encompasses all of life. And what Solomon wants you to learn from this psalm is that life without the Lord is empty, it's pointless, and it's vain. True and lasting fulfillment in life is only found in satisfaction and trust in God alone. So let's pray. Lord, may we not build our houses in vain. May we invite you to build them with us. Lord, may we not stay awake in vain, but entrust to you the job of watching over this city. Lord, 
May our sleep patterns be a way of glorifying you. Lord, may our meals be eaten in peace and not in anxiety. And Lord, may we feel your love when we allow ourselves to fall asleep in faith. Amen. Thank you.